We are, yes, we're recording. Colin, welcome back. We are going to be talking about your book, Make, Learn, Change. And I am really looking forward to this because this is something, you know, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, the more I read this book, the more I like it. Ooh, that's a great compliment. I like yeah, that. yeah. I've been, I've <laughs> been, you. and I've been digging into this. You know, I, I take a pen and start really writing notes all over the book. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to these next few sessions because, um, just because, <laughs> that's what I like to do is dig into these things. So I tell you what, why don't you give give a little overview about the book and then. I'd like to let's start digging in. Yeah, sure. So yeah, so I wrote this book, and I I, um, I hesitate sometimes to call it a book because it's only forty eight pages long, and it's got lots of space and diagrams and so on. But I wrote this book with the specific intention of supporting senior people in organizations who may be exposed to agile ways of working, but never understood like what is it really about and what's their role in it. One of the well, the guiding sort of motivation to write it was for a specific person who had been a client with a client of us too. And when we did a, a kickoff, he was there. And I learned six months later that he didn't understand a lot of what we were talking about, but didn't feel he could ask the questions because he was in front of his team. And, you know, I understand, you know, you don't necessarily want to expose that vulnerability in, in that setting. So I felt bad for him, though. I felt that he was um, engaging with us, a very expensive agency, to build a digital product for him, and he didn't really understand the specifics of what we were talking about in terms of how we were going to work. So I wrote the book so that people like him could read it really quickly and get a good enough understanding that they could engage with us with some confidence about how we how we work and how Agile works. I just could give the, almost the fir- one of the first sentences in the opening paragraphs. Often I hear... We're supposed to be using Agile, and yet I don't see any improvements in our ability to deliver quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that a bunch. Pardon? I've seen that a bunch of times. Yeah. So, well, yeah, and, and as have I. So let's, let's start there. Talk about that. What do you think is happening in those organizations? And, you know, that's a common theme. Yeah, it's a common theme, and, you know, I think in some sense, it's a real damage to the world of Agile because I think some organizations who go through that frustration reach the other end of that journey and say, you know what, this Agile stuff's crap and get rid of it. And if someone else comes in trying to help them move to these modern ways of working and go, if it's Agile, I'm not interested because they got burned. They spent a tremendous amount of money on trying to make a change happen and they saw nothing happen. They saw nothing change. So what I think is going on there is like most things that take place in our life, change is about behaviors and when something like agile is coming into the space to to have a change the behaviors alone won't do it and that might sound counterintuitive people like if obviously if i need change to happen i need to see people do things differently than they were doing before and there's a limited truth to that when you're talking about agile but really what you need is a change in the mindset and the perspective that people hold and that isn't easy to change no. that's hard and it takes very specific, uh, appro- it takes a very specific approach, being cognizant of the fact that that's what you're actually trying to change. Yes, people's behaviors are going to have to change as well, but the behaviors without the mindset change leads to the outcomes of no real impact. Mm. And I think that is really at the root of most of the places I've seen where they've struggled to see any impact by um, bringing in agile. So there's something happening on the surface 
but this thing that you're referring to as a mindset shift has not actually happened. Correct. So let me give it, let me illustrate that with something specific. I'm just going to make the assumption that most of our listeners are exposed to agile generally. They've got a sense of what we're talking yeah, I think about. So if we talk fair... about it, if we say the word stand up, I'd be surprised if anyone listening doesn't know what we're talking about. So the daily 15 minute meeting that takes place between a team where the people who are doing the work get together, talk about what they're going to do today and organize themselves around getting the work done. Now, that's a very basic um, activity. I could explain that to a 10-year-old child and they'd understand what I meant. Mm -hmm. Get together, talk about what you're going to do today, right? How are you going to help each other if you need some help? Mm -hmm. However, the way that manifests will have in, in terms of whether you're going to get any value out of that 15 minutes or not, is going to be completely determined by the mindset with which you come to that meeting. Yeah. If you come to that meeting with the intention of just explaining to whoever happens to be present what your individual plan is for the day and what you did, let's say, since the last time you got together, and that's your only approach. So, you know, the very common uh, template that people use is, what did I do since the last time we met? What am I going to get done today? And do I have anything that's blocking my progress? Those three questions can be answered in a way that is completely useless <laughs> <laughs> to the advancement of the team working together, or you can answer them in a way that is directly connected to that team making major progress. Mm. The questions are the same, but the mindset with which you answer those questions will determine whether it's outcome A or outcome B. And the problem is, if you aren't really exposed to and educated about the principles that sit behind Agile, and you're just told, get together with your, your teammates and answer those three questions and do it all within 15 minutes, you are going to answer the outcome, going to generate the outcome that does not advance the process of doing Agile well. You just will, because that's going to be the default way of thinking. And I'm going to interrupt here just for a second. Yeah. You may not have even been told that you may have seen that you're on a league table that is measuring whether or not your group is having standups or not. I mean, and, and, <laughs> and you, can tick the you can tick the box that says, yes, we're doing standups. We are answering those three questions and we're doing them with roughly 15 minutes every day and you will get absolutely no value mm. out of the standup. Now, if you come to that standup with the perspective of, I am sharing what I've accomplished over the last, since the last time we met, for the purpose of un other people understanding what progress I've made so that I can inform what they're working on and I can understand what the progress they've made. And then I'm answering the question about what I'm planning to do for the purpose of collaboration. Mm -hmm. In other words, if I say I'm gonna work on X, I'm saying that because I want to know, is that gonna interrupt anyone else's work who may be planned on working on something else that might be counter to what I was planning to work on? Or, has someone already started on X and I didn't know that. So now I now make people aware and they can say, oh, hang on a second, I started that already. Or someone says, I'm an expert in that area. I've done this a million times before. Let me pair with you and we can do that quickly. Or you shouldn't be working on X. Why are you working on X? Our decision was we weren't doing X this sprint or whatever. If I'm sharing with that intention and then I'm listening as a team member with that intention, I will get a completely different result. Totally. Well, let's, 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 we said we were going to give our listeners questions. So since you've gone here and started to open up the, the topic of the stand-up, let's just do some questions. 
and probably could guess the question that Colin and I really don't care about. Well, we do care. Are you having a stand-up? But that's not going to be the, <laughs> that's not not the question. It. That's not going to cut not it. not going to cut it. So what is the question? What's the question we should be exploring here? I think there are many, but one of the ones that comes immediately to mind is, is the result of that stand-up a team that has a better cohesion around the work to get done that day? Wow. How, how would you ask that? I mean, I get, I get the question, but put it now into some kind of delivery environment. Your senior manager, your program manager, maybe you're, you're somewhere in right. between. You've got your, your individual portfolio, but you have maybe 10, 15 different teams working in your portfolio. How do you get some responses to that? So I would say that if you're in that, at that level, that altitude within the organization, there's probably a few things you can do, and this will be an activity more so than a question that we probably will suggest in a number of different ways. But I can't even remember the, the Japanese uh, expression for this, but there's basically it's go see, right? Like if you're a manager and something goes wrong, go with your own eyes and go look and see the thing yourself, right? I would say go visit some stand-ups. Go see what the, what, the language, what the dialogue looks like. If it looks like people reporting their progress and plans, as though there's someone like a project manager style person, which may be called a scrum master, who is recording that and making sure it aligns with what's on their team board, they are not getting the value. And it's very difficult for someone to describe that to you if you're not there yourself and to really get, to get an understanding. So I would say go see, you know, ask your team, would you mind if I join your standup? You don't have to do anything different, do what you normally do, I just wanna see what's happening. And use that as an opportunity to just observe. And you should be asking yourself, does this team look like they're collaborating? Does it look like they're offering each other support when they are facing challenges? Are they offering support to each other? As in, I can help you with that. Would you like to talk about that after the standup? You know, that is going to be a litmus test of, the, of a number of things, really. In fact, if I'm working with a brand new team, I can go to two or three standups and, and that's 15 minutes a piece and know a lot about the quality of that team and how they work. And, and if I could just highlight to, to people listening right now, notice that Colin is not saying go to the standup to get an update. He's, he's saying <laughs> go to the standup to learn about the quality of the way the team is interacting. Absolutely. Because that's a risk, isn't it? It is. If your team is just... It really isn't collaborating closely. I mean, let's put that word agile to the side for a little bit. Yeah. If your team is not really, or teams, plural, are not really collaborating closely, that's a risk. Yeah. A risk will probably bite you at some point in time. And I think, you know, I think you, it's really astute for you to raise the importance of the role you're playing when you're in that meeting. Because just by your very presence, you will change it. You can't help that. But you can try to provide some uh, safety and psych psychological safety to the team to just carry on as they would otherwise. Yeah. Now they're not going to be able to do it hundred percent, but you won't know the difference. So a try to make it safe for your attendance to not influence the team that much. First thing. Second thing is don't ask any questions because as soon as you open your mouth to ask a question, the questions you ask have a disproportionate impact on how people behave that you never see. So it's super important that in that session, you don't say anything other than, hi, everybody, carry on. At the end, thanks so much, and you leave. Then that, 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 that end is really important. Say thank you. 
Yeah. <laughs> it may Say sound silly. It may sound silly, but that, I believe, is really laying the groundwork for a safe environment. Hey, everyone, I really appreciate you letting me join this. Thank you. Yeah. And then if you have questions about how it's been run or you know how things could be better or whatever, there are, you can find opportunities to speak to the appropriate people on the team outside of that session. But that session is not for anyone other than the people doing the work. And therefore, you should take up zero of their airtime talking about things, asking questions. It's not an update for you. It's not. It's a collab. It's a meeting to structure the collaboration for the day. That's actually that's the intention. That's the principle. But is that really what you're seeing? Exactly. So you want to be looking for. Are you seeing that? That my question is: Am I seeing what looks like a team that is has cohesion? and that they're looking at ways to collaborate to move things forward on the project. And that's even if things have gone spectacularly wrong. You may happen to show up on the stand-up on a really bad day, but the issue is not the update. The issue is how is that team deal? In fact, do you even see a team dealing with that? Or do you see this dynamic that Colin described of, one person in charge and sort of dictating and delegating to everyone else. Yeah. If the latter, our argument is that's a risk. Yeah. That's a and risk I, in your portfolio. And I would highly suggest that you see several teams. So if you've got a portfolio or an opportunity to have to look at the stand-ups for say three or four teams, take the opportunity because you will see differences between them and that will further inform your eyes and ears as to what you're looking for. You go, oh, I noticed in this team or this person said, oh, by the way, I don't have much work to do this afternoon. Is anyone who needs any help on something? And you think, oh, I don't remember hearing anything even to that spirit in the other ones. Or you might say, um, someone says, look at this thing is taking me much longer than I thought it was going to take. I thought it was going to be done yesterday. I wasn't. I'm still working on it. And someone else goes, would you like me to pair with you? That is the type of activity, type of behaviors you want to be seeing in what looks like a team that is healthy and working towards getting things done. Now, Colin, in my head, I can hear someone saying to me, John, I, I just don't have time for that. I, I can't get in the weeds of delivery like that. I've got to be more at the strategy level. Yeah, I, I hear you. And here's the thing. One of the key messages in that, that book I wrote is you have to, as a leader, you need to behave in a way that advances the way those teams operate. And some of that, is going to require you to look, not get into the weeds, but look at the weeds. Yeah, nice, nice way to frame that. You need to see the weeds because that's where it's all happening or not. And if you stay at an altitude where all of your understanding of what's going on is filtered through people who are going to try to tell you things you want to hear, or they're going to send you reports that are going to try to tell, show you things you want to see, you will not understand what's happening, happening in your projects. And um, there's a, it's very hard to describe on a podcast, but there is a, uh, a little routine I do when I'm doing training to, to help people understand the distinction between what you can expect on the trajectory of an agile project versus a traditional waterfall project. I'll try to give you a sense of it here. But essentially, if you are accustomed to uh, waterfall projects and you use, let's say, a RAG status, so a red, amber, green approach to understanding how things are going, you will start off with the project and people are reporting that things are green. Of course they're green, they're just getting started. 
And as the project continues on, the team will uh, encounter issues and they will resolve them. And by the time it's time for another status update, things are still green. And then things will get a little bit hairier. Uh, and as things are getting hairier, the project manager is hesitant to alert anybody, doesn't want to scare anybody, figures we can get this stuff sorted anyway. So let's just report it green, even though things may be a little bit of a problem. But in their mind, say, you know what, we're going to solve this. We always solve this stuff. And then it starts to slip into a zone that they're starting to panic and realize, actually, this is not good. Last time I reported green, and it was probably more like amber, but I think I need to let people know that we're actually in real trouble. At that point, it jumps from green to red, or it may even slip <laughs> through amber for a week, and then it goes straight to red. And people are saying, well, what happened? I thought things were going fine. And then you know, a very senior person is going to be called in to rescue the project, knock some heads together, you know, get it over the line and everyone you know, sees this person as a hero. Now, if you have been around the block, you will have seen that pattern. If you reflect on your career, you will have seen that pattern so often that you kind of expect it. As it's getting close to the delivery date, the launch date, you expect some reds to start showing up. Now, in contrast, what I'd expect to see on an Agile project is the team starting off there, you know, if you know much about Agile, you know that one of the first things they want to do is get something right through, do a you know, sort of red line or you know, tr tracer bullet is often the term used, to get something that is very, very minimal, but all the way through the, the delivery process. So something that's been designed and built, tested, and put into production. They want to do that as soon as they possibly can. They might want to try to do that within the first few weeks. And in trying to do that, they're going to realize that some stuff they can't do. They don't have access to a test environment. No one's configured one for them yet. So they're going to report that they're red. Now, if you are a person accustomed to the first scenario, and the first, in the first month, the team reports the status of the project as red on an Agile project. You go, what the heck is going on here? How can you be <laughs> red? You just started. Exactly. But the truth is that team is surfacing early problems. Yeah. yeah. And they're exactly. using that method to show that there are issues. Now, if you are a senior exec and you don't recognize that because you're not close enough to understanding how Agile actually works, you will cause ripples into that team that may not be recoverable you will start to push them down in a way, maybe not certain, not, not deliberately, not even consciously, but you will push them down in a way that will move them away from when you're working in an agile way to satisfy you rather than have the change that you really do want. Ultimately, you do want this change. And it's because you're not necessarily close enough to understand that that's actually a positive thing, not a negative thing to see a red come up so early in a project. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, I want to unpack some of that bad news early idea that, that this and this idea. You gave these two scenarios of what, what you were referring to as a, as a waterfall development approach versus what you'd kind of see. You know, we don't have a build environment, therefore we're going to mark things either as, as red or amber. You're going to get these, these risks get flushed out earlier. So I want to talk about the, the actual title of the book because you have the word make first. Make, yeah. learn, change. Yeah. And make is first. And I was saying, you know, that the more I've uh, spent time with this book, the more important I see that word make as being. And I'd, I'd like to unpack why is making something so critical? It's a big topic, actually. So <laughs> we can. Well, that's we why can, I'm opening uh, it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and well, I want to, and I'm oh, sorry, I just, and I also want to really, we're going to put this word agile to the side. Yeah, if we, can, if we can put that aside, I think all the better. Yeah. 
I but honestly, I tried to write the book and not use the word agile, and I found I couldn't do it because I needed a shorthand to talk about the overall thing. But if I could have, I would have. Yeah, I get that. I get that. It is difficult. But we want to start not using that shorthand. Yeah. And start saying, okay, why is making something so critical? And the, if you were, you know, the, the example that Colin gave is a team that attempted to try and make something and get it into a production environment. We are talking about digital products here. They are making something, trying to get it into a production environment, and they couldn't. Yeah. So the the essence of why making is at the heart of all of this discussion is because that is when you learn the most. One of the foundational components of the way we're talking about working is learning. And the reason why learning is so important is because we're in an environment of uncertainty, meaning we don't know, we don't have the answer at the time at which we are starting. So the answers will reveal themselves through the process of doing the project. And the best answers come through the process of actually making something. So what I mean by that is this. While we're in the stage, whether no matter how long or short it is, where we're designing something, we haven't made anything yet. So what will be embedded in that will be a tremendous number of assumptions, some that we know in advance and some that we don't know or don't recognize. And it's only when you translate the design of that thing into a real thing that we will recognize and acknowledge and be aware of a lot of the assumptions that we were holding. Some will be right and some will be wrong, but we won't know that till we actually make it. In fact, you won't really know until it's in the hands of the intended user. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So through the process of making, you will surfer certain assumptions before you put in the hands of any users, you try to make something. So you'll find out, is the technology actually effective? Do my people understand how to work effectively in this technology? Are the different parts of the organization that need to contribute to this contributing? Does everybody know what they're, con so, you know, take it, make it less esoteric. If there are things that we're trying to do that require sign off from compliance and legal, well, we need to get them involved early enough so they can do that and make sure we're not building the wrong thing, right? So if we, don't try to make a real thing and get all the people involved to the extent they need to be to get that thing to level at a level that's ready to go to production. We are holding onto unvalidated assumptions. And then once we have it in production, meaning really have it in people's hands who are going to intended users, then we start to learn about how our product is working for them or not working. And we want to be, having so if you, if you call of all of that a feedback loop from the time you start making it to the time it's in someone's hands and then we get information about all those things along the way that loop we want to be as short as possible because the longer we hold on to unvalidated assumptions the higher the risk is that we got something wrong that was important and we don't find out till later if that loop is a very long period of time is that making sense it, it's making a lot of sense in fact I, i'm Thank you for giving me a little springboard here to jump in because I think this is how we can put this word agile to the side for a little bit. Um, I'm going to quote a line in this book. You talk about at its core, um, it, when you boil it down, it is a risk management strategy. Yeah. This activity of making something is ultimately designed to reduce the risk 
in product development and product delivery. Yeah. And forget the word agile. Yeah. Let's just talk about mitigating risk and minimizing risk. Yeah. I I have a story I'd like to share. Fire away. Which is really, I think, puts this in perspective. Relatively early in my agile uh, career, and I say agile career in the sense that I was working I'd been working in the waterfall way for a long time and then was exposing myself more and more to agile and understanding better how this could be used. And around that time, I was working with an investment bank in New York. And we were implementing a a large CRM system. And that whole project took five years. And I was on it for most of that time. But definitely towards the very end, I was on a, a specific piece of it. And the sponsor, the client-side sponsor for the part I was working on was actually based in London. So I was living in New York working on this project, and she was the sponsor for the part that I was implementing. I was a project manager at that stage. And after we were done, um, there was, you know, we, went, we launched it. And there was a huge celebration, and people in my company got promoted, and it was, you know, it was a big success. And then I ended up leaving the company and moving to London, and because I had just arrived, I didn't really know a lot of people. I contacted her and said, um, I'm here and I'm looking for work. And I wonder if you knew any agencies that would be good for contract work. And she said, oh, but you're in, you're in London now? I said, yeah. She said, well, you know what? I could really use some help because we're going to rebuild the CRM system. I said, what? <laughs> she said, yeah, we're going to rebuild it. I said, what do you mean rebuild it? Like, what, where is it now? She goes, oh, we got rid of it. I, I can't. I can't. I couldn't process what she meant when she got rid of it. It was a year later, right? Just a year. And it turns out that after five years and $120 million that they spent on this, they had to get rid of it because it wasn't fit for purpose. Hmm. Now, I think to put this really in context, we're talking about an investment bank, first of all. Second of all, we're talking about a system that was used internally. So... My experience, my exposure and experience to working with investment banks is they pay you enough money that you do what you're told. If that's the tool, you use the tool. And this was supposed to be used by 25,000 employees globally. And it was so poor that it could not do the job. Now, you remember I said that when we finished that project, there was celebrations, there were promotions, because everybody was looking at the fact that we completed all the tasks for doing this project. There was nothing connected to what the impact and positive impact it was going to have on the business. There was no connection there. And when I reflected on why did this, how could this go so catastrophically wrong, I realized it was because all the risks were held to the very end. Hmm. Everything about whether this project, product would actually actually work, not what people thought would work, not what we asked people would work, what we analyzed would work, no, what actually would work, wasn't found out until it was released to production five years later from when we started it. So the moral of that story is they could have saved a tremendous amount of money, not only the first time through, but the second time through, having applied the simple idea of short feedback loops. Let's let's just let's use that because we've only got a few minutes left in this session and I want to just give P 
people some questions. I want to walk away because there's a lot there. And I suspect many listeners are in kind of a half state where they're not building, you know, three-year iterations. But at the same time, in fact, some may even be saying, hey, we're doing sprints, but we really don't put anything into a production environment for X, you know, several months or something like that. Here's some questions that I think, you know, you have a portfolio. What is the release cadence, the production release cadence of the, let's just call them product lines in that portfolio? In fact, are you are you even able to articulate that? Can you, do you have that data? If not, what would it take to get that data? And then as you start to get that data, you know, I think it's worth asking some questions. Help me understand what is preventing us from creating a tighter feedback loop, a faster, uh, more quickly reoccurring feedback loop. What's getting in the way from us doing that? That information, I think, is going to be very powerful. That, that, in fact, that could be many of the things that you, in your role, could start acting on. What are the things that are preventing my team from creating a tighter feedback loop with our customers? My, sorry, my teams from creating a tighter feedback loop with our customers. And what will happen when you start asking that question is people will surface things that are systemic in your organization. Absolutely, absolutely. And when that happens, and they will feel resigned, they'll say, well, that's just the way it is here. And it is in your gift as a senior leader to break down those barriers. And, and we're not just talking about you know the big established uh, companies, because if, if you've got a funded startup, how often are you getting product out into your customer space? What's the feedback loop that you've established? And how difficult is it to get that product and that feedback, uh, to get that feedback loop established? And I would say, ask it with a, a sense of curiosity, not yeah, a sense sorry, yeah, of judgment. Sorry, definitely. Because if you ask with a sense of judgment, then people will either not tell you the truth or they will defend why things are the way they are. If you ask it with a sense of curiosity, or, or they'll oh. game the system, or they'll game the yeah, it yeah, says, "Well, we released, we do release frequently." Yeah, <laughs> you know, they, they, I mean, there look, there are ways to to game a system in in releases. What you're, it's Colin's absolutely right. That's a really good point. You've got to be using this as a, a means to gather information about what are the thing, what are the activities I need to start doing to help my teams work more effectively and more efficiently. And what you'll find is not only will people identify systemic issues, but it's a systems-based problem that you have to address. So you can't just look at, okay, well, what's this little area what's affecting them? Because they, they are part of a much larger system, and it will expose the constraints that exist today that goes across the whole system. Oh, there's, so there's so much to dive down into that, <laughs> into that little topic because, it, yes, there is... So, there is so much systemic stuff that's going to be opened up. But that can become the roadmap for change. You know, if you, if you did a, a little bit of a project to identify, get honest um, 
uh, input on what is constraining the ability to shorten the feedback loops for getting things into customers' hands. And you ran some workshops or whatever mechanism you would use to gather information. And then you said, okay, let's systematically work through making that better. That would be probably the best agile transformation, sorry to use the word, that we could probably come up with because it would it would focus on creating a measurable, useful outcome, which is a shortened feedback loop. I actually, I, I think you're spot on. I don't think you should be apologizing about, that's what an agile, I would argue that is what an agile transformation should be doing. We should be asking people to make something, to create that feedback loop, and then using that activity as a diagnostic tool to get an understanding of what is the roadmap for us to start knocking these obstacles out of the way. What is yeah. the diagnostic tool telling us about where our organization is ineffective and inefficient? Yeah. Or how I, maybe as a person in a senior leadership role, am actually getting in the way in some cases. Because it, yeah. be it could be a behavioral thing as well. Just to, just to get, put some specifics around that. The behavioral thing could be that there's a very long chain of sign-offs before something gets done. That could, that could easily add months in some organizations to getting something from an idea into production because you have to go through a very elaborate set of sign-offs. And you might say, well, that, we need that. Well, the question is, do you? Do you have empowered teams who are given a space in which to create positive business outcomes and left to do that and assessed on the outcome? That doesn't necessarily require the kind of sign-offs that I've seen in lots of organizations. And behaviorally, if you're running a startup or you've entered into the scale-up phase, are you asking your team, shift left, shift right? Oh, no, shift left. Actually, shift left and a half, then right. You know, is, <laughs> is it, are you making it hard? Because you've got this new great thing, this great idea. Have you really created that feedback loop and then using that feedback loop as a diagnostic tool to help your company just become, become more effective and deliver products that matter. I got to say, I know we're coming towards the end. And when I think about the power of that activity and how much impact you could have by just doing that one thing, it's incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And take the word agile out of the conversation and talk about it in those terms. We're creating a feedback loop to make sure that we are delivering fit for purpose product and we're making stuff in these very short cycles so we can figure out what's getting in our way from creating those tight feedback loops. Yeah. Great. All right. Colin, why don't you tell everyone where they can get Make, Learn, Change? Yeah, you can get the book on the Us2 website, uh, who I work for. If you go to Us2, that's U-S-T-W-O dot com forward slash agile hyphen leadership. All right, everyone. Thanks a lot. Colin, thanks. It's been thanks, awesome. John. Yeah, it's been great. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.